Even though I've been desperately trying to wean myself off it, I am, I confess, still on the platform formerly known as Twitter. It's a dumpster fire without question, but I am hanging on for grim life. But of its many corrosive impacts on our public life, perhaps the most acute is the rise of a particular kind of dogmatic certainty. It's like, to fit a strongly held belief into a limited character count, you have to remove all equivocation, any doubt, even the slightest hint of nuance. Ideology and belief are now starkly, righteously immovable things, shouted at one another across the internet. It seems pretty unlikely that a writer best known for an epic 19th century novel about New Zealand's goldfields might provide a corrective to the limits of public discourse, but as far as I'm concerned, Eleanor Catton has done just that with her new book, Burnham Wood. It's been more than 10 years since the wild success of the luminary saw Eleanor Catton, at the age of 28, become the youngest ever recipient of the Booker Prize. Her follow-up is an ego-thriller, a Shakespearean tragedy, a satire, and a novel of manners, all rolled into one, and it's an absolute blast. Today on the show, I chat with Eleanor Catton about Burnham Wood and the dangers of feeling ideologically certain. I'm Michael Williams, and this is Read This, a show that is absolutely, unequivocally certain about the books we love. There are so many different kind of entry points to this book, but I thought we might kick off with Burnham Wood of the title and and the importance of Macbeth to this work. Yeah, so famously in Macbeth, uh, the, the play begins with Macbeth receiving a prophecy that he will be king. And he responds to this prophecy by um, killing the king and therefore becoming the king. And after this, he becomes addicted to the idea of receiving prophecies. He kind of he can't get enough. He goes back to the witches again and again. And later in the play, the witches give him uh, three prophecies. First of all, they tell him to beware Macduff. They tell him that nobody born of woman will ever harm him. And then lastly, they tell him that until Burnham Wood, the forest uh, near where he lives, comes to the castle, Dunsinane, where he lives, uh, he, he, he will never be vanquished. And Macbeth hears all of these later prophecies as statements of certainty. I was very interested in the idea of certainty and how dangerous certainty can be when, when we believe that something is absolutely definitely going to happen, the blindness that can sort of arise out of that or, or how, how that can lead us into blindness, the way that at the center of every conviction there, there is kind of a blindness by definition or kind of by necessity. And so what I wanted to do was to try and write a, a satire that was situated in the political present, involving characters from different points on the political spectrum, different generations, different levels of wealth and privilege, but who each would have a kind of a Macbeth-like journey towards certainty in, in a way. And what really interested me about Macbeth as a play is it's it's a play about prophecy. You know, it's it's so pagan in its imagery. It begins with the witches, there are cauldrons and spells and and so on. But from a plot point of view, it's it's not a play that requires any kind of supernatural engineering or deus ex machina engineering on the part of the writer at all. And I, I got really interested in the fact that, in in a sense, the the witches are operating on open source information. <laughs> <laughs> there is a reading of it where they are actively playing with them, that they're actively uh, commentators on a political situation. Right. They're not magical forces in, in the play, really. They're possessed of information that 
means that they can kind of trigger Macbeth and they can kind of push him towards doing something that maybe he wanted to do anyway. And I was quite interested in, in how that is analogous to the way that social media forces and um, people who have the power of surveillance over us are, are able to also kind of push us in Macbeth-like directions in the present day. Burnham Wood reads to me like a novel where, in part, you set yourself some rules and some yeah. tasks when it came to particularly the political satire part of it, because the Burnham Wood of the title in your book is a guerrilla gardening collective who clash with a arguably malevolent uh, billionaire <laughs> uh, who has his sights on the same patch of land. But you meticulously, studiously avoid heroes and villains falling down on particular sides. How conscious was that, that you were just like, I can't let myself put a weight on the scales just to make sure that it goes the side of the angels? <laughs> it was very conscious, and it came out of observations that I was making in myself and in the people around me, particularly in the aftermath of um, what happened around the world in 2016 with the election of Donald Trump and the Brexit vote. I mean, I, I feel like these world events were received with a mixture of horror, but also glee. And, and there's kind of satisfaction to kind of see these global powers coming down, you know. And I, I was noticing around that time that there was a lot of, there was just a lot of finger wagging going along, a lot of blaming, a lot of um, self-satisfaction. People seeming to agree that the world was hopelessly polarized and that polarization was a very bad thing. But never quite saying, and the person who needs to change in this situation is me. And, and it, it was starting to really annoy me. And I, I, I wanted to write a novel where where nobody would, could give themselves that satisfaction or no reader could have the satisfaction of thinking, well, you know, I, I have the right political opinions and I've come to this book smugly comfortable in my, in my point of view. And so that's great because I'm going to um, see that validated because the good guys are going to win and the bad guys are going to perish. You there's, know? <laughs> there's many crimes, big and small, in Burnham Wood, but the most unforgivable crime that you depict is self-righteousness. I was very consciously wanting to write a book that dealt in dramatic irony, you know, plotting it in such a way that the characters would have to come to confront their opposite or kind of become their opposite in some way. And... Unfortunately, on the left, I think that the you know self-righteousness, it, it's a problem, let's say. I think some of the more acute divides rather than left and right in the book are the generational yeah. ones. How deliberate was that, that kind of plotting through different generations of ideology and approach to the world? It was really important to me, um, partly because I, I wanted the book to be a satire of property, you know, um, New Zealand's obsession, an unbelievable obsession with property. And the way that that conversation plays out in New Zealand, it very much breaks down along generational lines. Probably also it's because I'm a millennial by birth and, uh, you know, millennials love nothing better than to um, get together at a dinner party and talk about all the ways in which we've been shortchanged by our parents' generation. Um, and in New Zealand, it's a country that trades on on this image of itself as a very kind of progressive, very benign, very, very friendly, um, egalitarian country. But in fact, inequality is rising faster in New Zealand than almost anywhere on earth. And a, a lot of this injustice, this kind of growing injustice, is playing out along generational lines. And, and it very much has to do with property, who, who owns it, and who's, who's, um, who's renting it, and who's refusing to give it away. 
I think it has particular resonance, though, beyond the property thing. Uh, the ways in which this book is an eco-thriller is that question of climate and the climate challenge. What is appropriate action in the face of a disaster that we can all see but can't quite get our heads around? Oh, gosh, I mean, it's such a huge question. I think that I, I almost have two answers for it or, or two non-answers for it. Um, one is a, just as a citizen and then one as a novelist. I'm supposed to take the novelist um, part of it first. It's very difficult to find a kind of a human scale within the climate crisis. And a novel needs to succeed at the level of human beings. It needs to, you know, show that actions matter, that people matter, that their relationships with one another matter. And to think about responsibility in the scale of something that's so total and you know, it's, it's so kind of aggregate. <laughs> um, it just poses a really difficult challenge for the for the novel, I think. My way of approaching it was to begin Burnham Wood with, um, on the very first page of the book, there's a landslide that um, closes a mountain pass. So some earthquakes have precipitated this landslide in a remote part of New Zealand. And you, you find out later in the book that this landslide was not actually an act of God. It was a man-made event. And I think that was as far as I went in the book as in terms of making a, a kind of an environmental statement or an ecological statement that a lot of the environmental catastrophes that we are facing need to be treated as man-made events rather than as acts of God that we're kind of baffled by, you know. And uh, not, not to spoil anything, but you do, you know, destroy a national park before the book is out. I mean, you really are. <laughs> You're quite happy to let it burn to make a point. <laughs> Well, I mean, one of the characters is happy to make it burn, to make it, to make a point. Um, I don't, I don't know if I approve. You're backing of, away. You're blaming it on your character. I'm pretty <laughs> sure you created that character. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that that's the thing about a, a, a work of plotted fiction. Really, is that you are judging them by their actions. They're participating in a complete reality that you are kind of untouched by. You're able to observe and to hopefully be invested in and be interested in, but it it isn't your reality. It's a contained reality. And I think that that's why the novel has such kind of moral richness. Um, it, it, it enables us to play out all of these questions in our mind, like what, what if? Would I have done that? Would I have acted in that way? Would, it, would I have done what he did? You know, I've, I've kind of come to the point where I've, I believe that those little if questions or those little fictions are essential to morality of any kind. So I think that what happens when you read a novel is just... It's a more elaborate version of what any kind of decent person is, is kind of doing all the time because they're saying, well, what if, what if it wasn't me here? What if it was me over there? After the break, Eleanor Catton expands on the potential and the limitations of the novel as a tool for civility and empathy in how we explore ideas and the ways we talk to one another. Did you know you can support the artists you love and receive a tax deduction for donations over $2 through the Australian Cultural Fund? Last year, the Australian Cultural Fund facilitated over $11 million of donations to artists across the country. You can make a real difference to the work of Australian artists this end of financial year by donating through the Australian Cultural Fund. For more information, visit australianculturalfund.org.au. With award-winning news coverage and reviews, The Saturday Paper is essential reading for everybody. For a limited time, subscribe to a year of our quality, independent journalism 
and you'll receive the Saturday Paper's stainless steel coffee cup made in collaboration with Fresco for free. Subscribe from just $2.10 a week. Simply visit thesaturdaypaper.com.au forward slash offer. The Saturday Paper. No hot takes. Burnham Wood is a resolutely political book concerned with big ideas and ideological impasses. But Eleanor Catton is meticulous in putting character and plot first. If she wants her readers to reach a particular conclusion about the novel's politics, she hides it well. Are you a certain person? Are there things about which you feel very kind of ideologically determined? I hope not. I think that I I feel very passionately about the importance of things, but I don't think that that's the same as feeling that something's right or or wrong. But that's partly because I've been thinking about this so much with this book that I, I feel very um, watchful in, in myself whenever I kind of drift towards certainty. <laughs> what, what about creative certainty? Is that a space in which you have fixed lines? Oh, that's such an interesting question. Um, it, it is true that I, I've never really wanted to do anything else. I, I'm not sure if I experience it as a certainty because I think that there are a lot of different ways that you can be a writer in the world. You know, certainty is a state where you you kind of stop listening or you stop observing, you stop noticing because you don't feel like you have to anymore. And, and one thing I've, I feel very troubled by in the present day is how often um, it seems people are expressing their political convictions in ways that almost seek to eliminate any opposing points of view. You know, like the, the, the idea that anybody could disagree with what it is that they're saying, it seems to be making people very angry, that they're approaching their own opinions and their own um, convictions and just kind of attitudes very much as a zero-sum game. It seems to me that it is mirroring a kind of way of interacting that is only possible online, but we've kind of come to import that back into the real world and then expect of our real world interactions that they will conform to this online way of behaving. So is that partly one of the unique opportunities of the novel as a form? I mean, it seems to me that the opposing force to that kind of cultural thing that you're talking about is the novel because of its capacity for nuance, internal conflict, interiority um, in Absolutely. Yeah, I believe that really strongly, actually. I, I've arrived at this faith in the novel, this belief in the novel in the last few years that I've, I've never had before in my life, actually, that it's a space where, where we can explore our morality and um, shape ourselves as moral creatures because uniquely, I think, the novel allows you to inhabit another person's skin, you know, inhabit their mind, inhabit their body. As you read a novel... You have to notice what the narrator notices. You have to think as they think and feel as they feel because you are, you are right inside that paragraph that is kind of taking you through the, the thread of their consciousness. And I, I also believe that the novel is, is unique in that it can show the connection between intention and action and then the connection again between action and consequence in a way that... Um, I, I just feel like we, we desperately need, because both of these connections are so severed online, increasingly the more power you have in this world that we live in, the more shielded you are from the consequences of your actions, You know, the more capable you are of, of shielding yourself. And as for the connection between your intentions and your actions, well, nobody can see your intentions online. You know, It's, it's just this kind of weird 
I don't know, vacuum. <laughs> and, the, and the relationship between word and deed is entirely collapsed into itself. Totally, yeah. So there's, there's no difference between saying something and doing it online. I'm always fascinated by people whose online persona, you meet them in person, and online they're very aggressive or very combative, and in person they're, you know congenial right. and, and lovely and charming. And you're just like, what is, I saw you <laughs> eviscerate you? <laughs> someone for not obeying a road rule yesterday. And now here you are just kind of chatting away nice yeah. as anything. In, in my research for Burnham Wood, I read this marvelous book called The People's Platform by Canadian activist um, Astra Taylor, which was just about how do we make our online spaces more democratic? How do we allow I mean, you know, even even the word allow seems so crazy, but how, how do we make it possible for women and for people of color just not to be, you know, just not to be destroyed in, yeah. in these online spaces in particular? And that really changed my mind about about, about this issue that you've um, just brought up, that I, I stopped seeing online spaces as reflections of human nature, and I started seeing them as distortions of human nature, that these are highly addictive environments that are designed to be addictive that are very deliberately severing you from the things about human interaction that would push you towards empathy. You know, we're, we're being pushed away from empathy when, it, when we go online. So is a novel a machine for empathy? I actually would stop short of saying that um, just because I think that um, I get a little bit tired sometimes of the argument that uh, reading novels makes you a better, better person. And, and I also think that it instrumentalizes the novel in a way that also slightly misunderstands it. But I do think that your utterances on, online are not subject to the natural decay of human memory. Um, the ways that we kind of say something in a conversation and we see the effect of it and we slightly soften it or we, we rephrase or we forget what somebody said in the earlier part of the conversation, we circle back. There's this kind of dreadful fixity to everything online that I think makes us more unforgiving. It makes us it makes us more certain of ourselves. It makes us more intolerant, I think, of, of genuine difference when we encounter it. But then, so even if it's claiming too much to claim that the novel might somehow be a corrective for that, at the same time, it seems to me the creative and imaginative process at the heart of a novel is about capturing the motivations of other human beings, finding ways to kind of illuminate that process and that path between intention, action and consequence. Yeah, I think so. I think that the what the novel can offer us is a, a way to kind of rehearse our morality in a way, like a, a way to explore what what happens when actions have consequences. Because a novel is made up, it's happening in a way that is is kind of consequence-free because you know, like, a, for example, in Burnham Wood, quite a lot of people die in the in the novel. Um, but I didn't kill anybody in, in, in the writing of it. These you say that, but it <laughs> seems very well-researched. I'm worried. <laughs> There's this way that we can explore finitude, but also finality, you know, in ways that uh, is, is, is just essentially playful and is, and is essentially... Um, forgiving because you can go back to the beginning and read it all again. The last thing I wanted to just touch on is that Burnham Wood, amongst many other things, follows the kind of genre conventions, the rhythms of a thriller in terms of kind of pacing approach and everything else. But uh, without spoiling the ending, you deliberately resist 
particular ideas about resolution, about justice, about kind of... Uh, often thrillers, there's a neatness to the way they resolve. And um, that was a part of the genre that you clearly wanted to resist. Yeah, well, you know, I'd, I approached the book more as a as a tragedy in the, in the, in the Shakespearean sense. I, w- I always knew the form that I wanted it to, to have by the end. But, yeah, I mean, I'd, I love thrillers. I love that that satisfaction you get by being completely and utterly outfoxed by a book or, you know, you, th- you think that something's going to happen and, and something different happens. I just, I, I, I don't really think there's anything better, to be honest. I'm always fascinated by the um, publishing divide between talking about commercial fiction and literary fiction. Like the idea is if it has artistic merit, it won't be popular <laughs> or, it, you know, that these things are at odds with each other. And it seems to me the things we seek from books, from stories uh, much more multi-layered than that. And sometimes pleasure and propulsiveness and whatever is a great artistic achievement. I would believe that. Like I, the 19th century novels that I go back to, it, it would be very difficult to draw a distinction between literary and genre. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Frankenstein, one of my favorite works, you know, which, which, which category does it belong to? Um, I think that that divide has more to do with just... Um, snobbery really than anything else. Pe- people wanting to feel as though their leisure activity is something elevating. <laughs> but I, I, I guess I don't really believe that. I don't, I don't think that a literary novel necessarily has the corner on kind of existential truth or, or anything like that. It, like We live lives of action and increasingly we need to live lives of action if we're going to face down these, these, these threats of ecological collapse. And so I, I think that there's a case to be made for the plotted novel, kind of now, now more than ever. I couldn't agree more. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Burnham Wood is available from all good bookstores now. As a 7am listener, you value the story behind the headlines. That's why you should read Post, a free daily newsletter bringing you the top five news stories of the day, summarising each of their key points. Sign up at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters. And before we get out of here, a couple of local recommendations this week. The first is a debut novel by Madeline Gray called Green Dot. Gray is a Sydney-based author, and her debut novel is about a young woman in her 20s who can't resist falling into an inappropriate love affair. An age-old story, but delivered with flair and grace and charm and a lot of fun on the page. And poet, essayist and activist Sarah M. Saleh has just brought out her debut novel. It's called Songs for the Dead and the Living, and it's wonderful. If you've followed her career as I have, you'll be unsurprised by how humane the characterization is, how deft the plotting, and how much you come to care about these characters as they make the journey from Palestine to Australia. I can't recommend it more. You can find these books and all the others we mentioned at your favourite independent bookstore. Or, if you want to listen to them as audiobooks, you can head to the Read This Reading Room on Apple Books. That's at apple.co slash readthis. There's a link in our show notes. That's it for this week's show. If you enjoyed it, tell people, share it with them, and then rate and review us as well. We love validation in all its online forms. Read This is produced by Clara Ames. Original compositions by Zoltan Fetcho, with mixing by Travis Evans. Thanks for listening. See you next week.